0: Good morning, everyone. Good, morning. Good to see all of you here today. Uh, we've been doing a series on hope. I'm kind of ringing. I don't know if you can bring me down a little bit. Um, we've been doing a series on hope. We have about uh, maybe three weeks more to do on that. I want to just remind you of sort of where we uh, are uh, planting our feet in regards to biblical hope. One is a uh, The idea idea that we underestimate how much our present behavior is determined by what we believe our ultimate future is. Uh, How you're able to respond to situations, choices that you make, uh, things that uh, uh, overwhelm you or overcome you. A lot of that reveals what your ultimate belief is about your ultimate future. Uh, If you believe you have an ultimate future, if you believe that there is something more for you than just this life, it will change everything about your behavior, your attitudes, and how you react. And when you react in such a way as one who has no hope, it is revealing to you that you do not have a trust in that ultimate future. And so instead of beating yourself up, you just go back and you begin to look and say, Why don't I trust God's promises for my ultimate future? The other thing is that the English word for hope is really an inappropriate and inadequate word to describe biblical hope. The English English word for hope always involves a degree of uncertainty. Like when you say, I hope that, you're kind of saying, I don't really know that. I'm not sure that. But this would be the positive outcome that I would look for in a circumstance or in a situation. And so that's not a biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope is actually found in this definition. I think it's Tim Keller's definition, and it's one I like. He says, hope is the life-changing, joyous certainty that your future is the love and the glory of God. See, what happens to a lot of us, particularly as believers is we want to avoid uncertainty, particularly about the future, about failure, about death, about all these things. We want to avoid uncertainties. And so we try to pull God into our lives in a way to leverage the uncertainties. Now, when we do that, and we do that illegitimately, He does not change our uncertainties into certainty. Like, there are, there are many people who they want to believe that if they gave $100 today, that God will give them back $1,000. You know, I, I don't know how many of you gave $100. Uh, but the idea that some people play on is this idea that, it, that you can somehow leverage with God by certain behaviors and actions. You can leverage the uncertainty of your life. The truth is that there will always be uncertainties. Or else, why would there need to be faith? See, this is the uncertain season of your life. This is when you live by faith, not by sight. And so your hope cannot be in that God will take away all of your uncertainties. Your hope has to rest on what He has made certain. See, He has said that He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's never said that He'll keep you from every storm. He said that He loves you with an everlasting love, that He knows you and He loves you. He knows you all the way to the bottom of your being and He loves you all the way to the top. That's a certainty. He said all kinds of things about himself and the revelation of who he is. He is love, he is wise, he is powerful, he is holy. These are all certainties upon which you can rest your life. For example, I mean many of us who grew up in the church particularly, who learned scriptures, we love Romans eight twenty eight. Here's a certainty. I know that in all things. Paul says, I am certain that In all things, God works together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That's a certainty. So when I am going through an uncertain season, the hope that I have is not lost or somehow, you know, uh, uh, tipped over. By that uncertainty, the hope that I have is revealed in the midst of those seasons. For some reason, I'm getting lots of... I'm more powerful this morning than ever. (laughs) (laughs) My watch just stopped too. uh. (laughs) All right, so what I'd like to do over the next few weeks, uh, I'd like to take on three at least controversial topics or difficult topics. And I, I like for us to go down this road together because as we talk about hope in this kind of high and elevated way, we also want to bring it into the things that we face every, every day of our lives. So today we're going to talk about sex, romance, singleness, and marriage. Might as well get them all at once. Then next week, we're going to have a little fun with money. We're going to talk about hope, Christian hope, and money. And then the last week of the series, I hope to do uh, Christian hope and power, which would include um, clashes of culture, uh, idea of, of racism, some of those different aspects that come in, and what our Christian hope does in in talking about how we handle ourselves, how we handle power, being under power, and, being, and having power. So, so for the next few weeks, I'd like to go after these things. So today we're going to look at a scripture that's rather radical. It's 1 Corinthians 6, and then a little bit of, we're going to jump over to First Corinthians 7. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about sex about romance, about singleness, about marriage. That's what we're going to look at, and how that applies to the Christian hope. So, I love it when you read out loud with me. So, I'm going to get you to read this out loud with me. Um, a lot of people actually sort of avoid these passages uh, because they they are they are kind of revolutionary. And they're somewhat difficult to understand at times. So we're going we're to kind of wade through this together. Let's read God's word. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now we're going to read, this is chapter 7. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though they had done, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. All right, so that's a kind of an interesting sort of radical type passage where Paul talks about some interesting things about marriage, about singleness, and about sex. So we want to we talk about this idea of how the Christian hope that Paul is talking about here radically affects the way we think about these things. Sex and romance, singleness and marriage. So what I would propose to you is that in this passage of Scripture, Paul presents a biblical, which I would say God's the designer, the creator, the designer's approach to sexuality. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is unveiling for you a view of sex that has pretty much not been seen in the world until this revelation. Okay, So the way that he unfolds it is he first takes two quotes, and then he explains these quotes, or he at least mentions these quotes. If you're, if you're a New Testament scholar, you know... That in the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, there are numerous places where he is quoting other philosophies or teachers or other ways of thinking. And then he assesses those and then he puts forth a Christian or a view from God's point of view. And so as we look at this, he's not not saying uh, uh, food for the body and the body for food and God will destroy them both. He's saying that's what a group of people say. Now let me explain a little bit about what he's saying when he says it. Simply this, he's saying that there are those in Greek philosophy which has dominated in Corinth... And throughout the Greek world, there are those in Greek philosophy who say that sex is nothing more than an appetite. He's simply relating a thinking or a teaching that is uh, prevalent and and, uh, pervasive in all of Greek society that sex is nothing more than a hunger to be satisfied. And Paul is saying that's not true. Paul is saying that is not true. You see, there were those who said that it didn't matter what you do with your body as long as you protect your soul. That what you do with your body doesn't affect your soul. Just keep your soul pure. Keep your soul clean. Keep your soul, you know, lofty philosophical things and you'll be fine. And then your body can do whatever you want with it. Some people reckoned it this way, that your body and, and, and it, your soul actually was more like a pearl. That, you know, when you put a pearl in mud, the pearl itself is not changed by the mud. It might get dirty, but it's not changed by the mud. All you have to do is rinse it off and the pearl is fine. So Paul is saying, okay, here's one of, the, one of the ways that the Greeks thought about sex and sexuality, and this was in the church. You have to remember that the Corinthian church was a young church. They were not from religious backgrounds, That, that they were not from a Judeo kind of Christian ethic. They were from a very Greek, very physical, very, you know, very... Um, Uh, Greek philosophy type background and they had experienced all kinds of things there were people in there who were from out of a form of prostitution there were people who were extortionists there were all kinds of people in that church they were they were not your typical Presbyterian looking church okay and uh and so they 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 were not church broke so to speak And so there were many in the congregation who had a very loose, very loose, very kind of uh, what they would call permissive or open or kind of libertine kind of view towards sex. And Paul says, that's not God. It's not biblical. Now, there was another group in the same church. And... um, he writes about them in, seven, in, in chapter 7, verse 1, where he says, "You know, now concerning the matters which I wrote to you, and then he quotes another group. He says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this was the opposite. It always seemed like the Greeks were good at getting the opposites on the containment. So you have these over here. I said, Look, it's nothing more than a cheeseburger. <laughs> you know, whatever cheeseburger you like, go have it. That's the idea here. It's nothing more than satisfying a certain craving. You get that craving, you go to Wendy's, you get it taken care of, you know? That kind of idea, okay? And then there was another group who on the other side said, well, anything that's of the body is evil. So here was their mindset is in order for the human race to continue, procreation is a necessary evil, but it's dirty. So even when you're making babies, you're defiling yourself. So you have this other group, you have this one group's like, let's just go have a cheeseburger. And then you have the other group's like, oh, this is the worst. We can't talk about this. We can't think about this. You know, we have to do it because we have to have children, but uh, we're going to play like we're not doing it when we're doing it. <laughs> and then afterwards, we're going to say we're sorry a lot. I'm sorry for what I did to you, you know. Now, I have been in the maternity ward every now and then. There were women screaming and yelling, and I heard husbands going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> so you get the idea. All right, now, you could say, uh, again, uh, uh, Keller, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he's been very influential in this series on me, for me, and uh, he said, you know, you could say, that the, the first view that it's nothing more than an appetite, it's nothing more than a you know a hunger. You could say that's a blue state attitude, Because okay? in the blue states, you're a little more, we're a little you know, New York, other places, people are a little more liberal. They they come at things really, really differently, and so everybody that kind of lives in this area tends to think like that, you know. Okay, it's just a hunger, it's just an appetite. It needs to be satisfied. It's no big deal. Okay, but if you grew up like I did in a red state, you know growing up in Mississippi, it's all hidden, You know every, you know it almost uh, it's more exciting because it's so dirty. you know, so you hide that, that anybody ever even actually had sex. I mean, you know people have children, but you don't know how they got them. <laughs> Walmart. <laughs> Walmart. <laughs> I think some of you were born at Big Lots, but uh uh, you know so so you have this you have this whole you know you have this whole kind of mindset and it 's interesting because this is what Paul is talking about it 's almost two thousand years ago, and it 's still what 's going on today you know it hasn 't changed there There're still those who go oh this is defiling and it's dirty and we can't talk about it and you can't really enjoy it and if you do enjoy it something's wrong with you and and there's all of this kind of this religious you know uh, pressure and stuff that you should be in a family you should have a family and stuff but but you shouldn't have this drive and, and and so we don't talk very honestly about it a lot of times and people are very afraid to talk about it in church and so we have these we have these schizophrenic lives we might be spiritual and afraid of our sexuality. Or we're, you know, we want to be religious, but we're afraid that we're the only ones who are hound dogs. You know, and so it's like, what's wrong with me kind of a thing? Or you get on the other side and everything's okay. It's just a cheeseburger. You know, nothing else. It's just what you're hungry for. It's just what you have an appetite for. And and nothing's really wrong. Guess what? Paul, you know, people sometimes think the Bible is antiquated. Paul is talking about exactly what we deal with today. Okay, so uh, is that clear to you? A little bit of teaching and professorship today. But I think it's very important you understand that nothing is new. Nothing is new. Nothing going on today is new. It's always been this way. There's always been this trouble. So what does Paul say? What does the designer say about your body? That's what we really want to know. Not not what the Greeks taught us. You know, not, not what the Gnostics taught us. We want to know what God, our designer, has to say. You know, the Creator. These are the instruction manual to your body. So... The very first thing that I want to bring up is immediately Paul, after putting forth these different views, he says flee. Notice that's a pretty strong word, flee. And then he says sexual immorality. He uses a specific word. He uses the word porneia, which you probably immediately know is where we get the eye of pornography. But the, the meaning of the word porneia In this context, it's not pornography. It is a very specific form of sexual immorality. When I say sexual immorality, it's very general. Okay, it's a very general statement, but porneia is a very specific uh, uh, teaching that Paul has here. He didn't use adultery. He didn't use fornication. I always thought that was a really dirty sounding word, fornication, you know? I don't know why. It just sounds bad. But... uh, uh, but, so he uses this word, he uses this word porneia, and guess what it means? It means any kind of sex, now listen to me, any kind of sex outside of covenant marriage. He's very specific here. Now you, you may have grown up in a blue state and you're like, what's the big deal? The big deal is the designer says that you should flee from any kind of sex that is outside of marriage doesn't matter if you've been divorced. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're in a marriage and the marriage is not good and you're not getting fulfilled sexually in that marriage, whatever it is. The designer says that when you break the design, something happens to you. This is not God saying, I want to take away your fun. I want to take away your satisfaction. You see, I believe with all my heart that the Creator designed you for ultimate fulfillment. He designed you for ultimate satisfaction. It's throughout the scriptures that God loves to bring pleasure to his children. He loves to satisfy us. That I believe that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied. So don't just believe the lie of the enemy and the cheapness of this world saying that you need to go and do your own thing and find your own way. Let me tell you, you go and do your own thing you'll have the same problems that you've had all your life because you're your worst enemy. No one has ever disappointed you more than you. There may be others who join in with that, but nobody has failed you like you have. So when you make the statement that you're going to live independently, you're going to live out of your own understanding, you're basically saying a fool is going to run your life. Instead of the Creator, the Designer. I mean, we are designed with purpose. And one of the purposes that he says is though there's, there's easy fulfillment in the cheeseburger category, or there's a whole lot of guilt and shame in the religious kind of dirty, degrading, defiling category, or, he can, or Paul is saying there's a whole new category. There's God's category. Now, it's really based on this one truth. It's, it's this word that Paul uses where he says one flesh. And, um, and so the idea he talks about that when someone unites himself with another, he uses the word prostitute, and sometimes that gets people a little bit uh, too much of a specific category, like you go and pay someone to have sex. But the, the cultural idea is, is very interesting In this context, the cultural idea is any unmarried person having sexual relations was a prostitute. Whether it was money or goods exchanged. If you were outside of a family relationship and you were having sex with someone who was not married, you were actually uh, having sex with a prostitute. It's a cultural thing. And so when Paul is talking about uniting yourself with a prostitute, he's not talking about paying for sex. He's talking about sex outside of a covenant, outside of a commitment. So whenever you're, he's, again, I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying the designer inspired Paul to write and say when you're having sex outside of covenantal commitment, you're having sex with a prostitute. You're joining yourself to someone that you have no emotional connection to. No emotional vulnerability with. No emotional commitment to. And so, it's important that we understand this idea of one flesh. Because Paul's not saying, you know, when you unite your body to another person's body, you have a body united. He's not talking about the physical union piece of this. He's saying that when you physically connect to another person in a sexual way person to persons are connecting. That when you connect in this way that your soul is connecting to another person's soul. So the reason I say this is because Paul often uses the word flesh and body to mean more than just tissue. What he means by it is an embodied personhood. So when Paul talks about your body or your flesh in this, in this, this regard, he's talking about you as a person So whenever you unite your person to another person, you get some of their person and they get some of your person. You become one flesh. You become oneness in personhood. Now, let's talk about what that means then, Paul says. Two of the commentators that were very helpful in this, is they say that Paul has this revolutionary design of sex that he's talking about here. One of the commentators said this, the act itself is one of self-commitment. Because when you do this, Paul is saying that you involve your whole person. You may think all you're doing is giving yourself physically, but you're actually your whole self is touching another person's whole self. Person to person. So you're actually giving yourself entirely to the one you belong to. This is why... By connecting in this way, you have done something more than just a physical action. You have committed, you have encountered the soul and the oneness thing here of person to person. Another uh, commentator says this way, that Paul is saying that you engage the entire person, that when you are having the sex act with another person, you are self-disclosing. You are self-committing. Even though you're not doing it with words, you are committing yourself. In other words, what these two commentators are saying is God did not invent sex as a defiling but necessary procreation, and he didn't invent sex simply as a way of self-gratification or self-expression. What Paul is saying here is that the sexual act in in the mind of the Christian should be this, a radical self-donation. I am giving myself to you. For you to give yourself to someone so deeply that it actually results in personal transformation and completion. See, Paul is really, in many ways, he's talking about the beauty of oneness. The beauty of union. The beauty of of you no longer being just you, but now you supplemented with the one you love. This is, this is in many ways the highest, highest, highest view of sex that has ever been presented in the world. It's never, ever has anything so beautifully been described in that which others have said is defiling and others have said is nothing more than an appetite. Well, what are the consequences of this? Well, Paul's saying that you should never, never experience physical oneness without whole life oneness. If you're going to give yourself physically, you basically will never see the fulfillment or completion or satisfaction that you're looking for until you can give your whole life oneness. Now, there's another aspect of this that, that comes out of this, and that is that I, I would like you to really think with me on this. Real intimacy with another person never happens until you give up your independence. You will never be completely, independent, uh, completely intimate with someone until you are no longer independent from them. And see, since we live in a society where it's nothing more than a hunger or it's defiling, what happens is some people just give and give and give and give and then they wonder why is there never that, that commitment? Why is there never that oneness? Why? Well, because you've already given yourself so many times that you don't no longer have a whole self to give to anybody. Or if you have this view that everything is it's defiling and all like this, instead of this beautiful view that the Bible has, the designer has for it, and you're, you're sitting thinking, oh, it's a necessary thing. Or, you know, I hate myself that I have so much drive. I hate myself that I want this. And you have all that going on, then you can never really give yourself to somebody else because what you're giving in your mind is something evil. Something less than instead of something greater than. And so the, the, the way that the designer created you and, and why so many of us do not ever experience completion or fulfillment or satisfaction is because you cannot really have the oneness with another that you long to have and were made to have until you're willing to give up your independence. And it's a scary thing to give up your independence because that person might reject you. That person might let you down. So, the idea here, and many of us, if we, if we're, you're tracking with me, you begin to understand that when you make yourself physically vulnerable, you're doing more than just, you know, one-night stands or even serial monogamy or whatever it might be that's current to do, you're actually constantly committing and breaking commitment, committing and breaking commitment, and having something of the mechanism, the apparatus of your soul that was meant to connect and meant to commit gets broken. And a big part of that is certainly trust. So Paul's view here is that, particularly for those of us that are in the marriage commitment he says give yourself in whole life commitment that's what will result in deep soul nurture and in deep satisfaction it may be hard for you to believe this because maybe some of you have never fully you know experienced that in marriage i know a lot of people who are christians who do not have satisfying marriages And do not have fulfilling marriages. And it's just easy. Instead of trying to to work on the marriage. Instead of trying to get to the place of satisfaction and fulfillment. Because there probably would be conflict. There probably would be hurts. There would probably be things said that would be hurtful. There would probably be things done that that would uh, break you in some ways. Uh, So people would rather just exist maybe coexist, live sort of parallel lives, maybe be corporately connected because they've got to take care of children's schedules, and they've got to take care of the books and the bills and all of this kind of thing, but that's not the biblical design for marriage. The biblical design for marriage expressed in the sexual act is a oneness that not only makes you one physically, but also completes you in your spirit and your soul. To have anything less than that is to have less than God's design. But in order to have that, you have to deal with why is it I'm so independent? Why is it I'm so unwilling to trust? Why am I so afraid? Why will I not reveal myself? Why is it I'm willing to be physically naked but not emotionally naked? This is really the issue that Paul is driving at. You see, many of us have settled for something mediocre in our marriage because we don't believe that there's anything else. The designer did not call us to this. The designer called you to personal transformation and a foretaste of it is the sexual act. That, that is a picture of the intimacy that is yours to have. Well, uh, if I could use Keller here to explain something that's true in my own life. He said his heart and his mind are so present with his wife's heart and mind that when something happens, that when something happens, he immediately knows what his wife would think about it. You know, like for me, that's exactly what happens. I have 34 years with Lisa. We we almost divorced once. We've certainly been angry with each other a lot. We've been depressed. We've had times of bitterness. We had the first nine years of our life were bitter. And and I would say that the biggest part of that, at least on my part, she can tell you her part someday, but my part was I thought she should be a certain person, and she wasn't. I thought she was supposed to be like my cheerleader. I thought she was going to think everything I did was great. Um, I never thought she'd constantly be telling me I was doing everything wrong. I mean, I thought I was going to be her hero. I was her zero, you know, and and uh, you know there were just all of these things, and I was just furious with her. Everything I thought she would do was the, she did the opposite. Every response I thought she was going to have to situations, she would always do the opposite. Now, and she would say she loved me, but she didn't conform to my idea of what loving me was supposed to look like. So for nine years, the first nine years of my marriage, I was furious with her. I was bitter. I was angry. We used words like, I can't wait to divorce you. I can't wait to, uh, why don't you leave today? We used harsh and hard words and it was, it was, a lot of it was spiritual warfare. A lot of it was my own brokenness, my own lack of capacity. And a lot of it was my fear. See, I never thought of myself as a fearful person, but I feared her. I feared her disapproval. I feared her disappointment. I feared the guilt you know, and the shame and all that she could bring to me. And so I, I, I was running... From the relationship, because in some ways, though I had committed myself with words and I had committed myself physically to her, I was running emotionally, and uh, and there were secrets, there were shameful things in my life. Because when I didn't find that satisfaction with her, I found some in pornography, I found it in lustful thoughts and lustful actions and all kinds of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not sharing with you from my marriage on the basis we did it right. We did everything wrong. And that truthfully, there was no one to help us. You know, because we lived over here where sex is defiling and degrading and, and everything is kind of religious and they were all like, well, you, need, you, you shouldn't think that way. I've always found that so helpful when someone says, don't think that way. <laughs> it just has always helped me. So oh, thank you, that's helpful. Yeah, I'm struggling with this. And you say, a Christian shouldn't think that way. Why don't I just punch you right now, you know? That was not helpful to me. That was not helpful. But I understand it better. They were coming from over here. If I lived up here, you know what they said? Well, what's wrong with you exploring your sexuality? Go actualize yourself. I I don't know if that's a dirty word or not. He'll fornicate. Now when you're married it's adultery, you can't use the cool word. Okay? So, so here's what I here's what I tell you. God God designed for me was not to make me comfortable in my marriage. It was to expose how unloving I was, how selfish I was, how I hate to say this, but how childish I was. My marriage exposed the lust of my heart. My marriage exposed the selfishness and self-centeredness and all the broken places. You see, I thought marriage was going to make life easy. (laughs) What marriage did is expose where I was broken. And see, there was a part of me that had this really wrong thinking and that is if you love me, you won't ever expose what's broken in me. You'll just make me look good. And so it was really God's laboratory for Agape Love. But we've been doing this, Lisa and I, for thirty four years. And we we've we've recognized that every new thing in our life we have to renegotiate, we have paradigm changes, everything starts back at zero and all this kind of stuff. But here's the thing if I do something or something happens to me or whatever, I always have her in my head. I know what she wants. I know how she thinks you know what? It makes me a better person. I mean, I have one way of seeing things. I have a, a, a clear vision of what I can see, but Lisa has a vision that's way beyond my vision. I mean, she, she so much knows the, the right things and the right times of things. I, I found that, that often I will know what God wants us to do, but I won't know the timing of it, but Lisa knows the timing of it. And I have become so much of a better man. I've not lost myself. It's not like Lisa one day did a Vulcan mind meld, you know, and (laughs) took all my masculinity out of me and stuff and made me a HGTV watcher, you know. (laughs) Which I am. No, I'm still, in a way, the best version of me that I've ever been because Lisa is inside my head. That's what, marriage is, is hard, marriage is difficult, but what you get is you get a supplement, you get completion. You're half in some ways, and, and then you get whole. And It's really important. I'm, I'm not going to stop here. We're going to talk about singleness, but just for a minute, just, isn't there a longing in your heart, not just to survive your marriage, but actually... To have a biblical marriage. To have oneness. Not just every now and then to have sex, but actually to have oneness where your wife supplements you and you supplement her, whatever it might be. Not a loss, it's a gain. It's interesting... The idea here is that it's a physical donation. It's a self-donation. So Paul says it's the only sin against the body. That's that's pretty interesting. So if it's a sin against the body and it's only tissue, then Paul would be wrong because suicide is a sin against the body, against the tissue. So what he's talking about is something much more deep than that. It's really what he's talking about is that every time you step away from the design... You destroy something in you. I, I had this picture, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you, you've taped something to something and then you rip it off and then you try to tape it back and you realize the adhesive's not holding anymore. That's the idea of your soul. Every time you connect and you disconnect, the, the, the commitment apparatus is broken. can be restored. It's not that it can't be restored, but you have to understand it's not going to be restored by time. It's not going to be restored by just positive thoughts. It's spiritual. You have done something spiritually to yourself that has broken you. You know, and so it's important that we realize that when you want, like I want you to have and what I want for myself is to have the greatest capacity for satisfaction and fulfillment. You can't do that if you're broken. And it's good to be honest about these things. So in verse 28, 27 and 28, Paul takes us like to another level and this is fascinating to me. He says, he said, basically, there's a revolutionary view then of singleness. And this is, this is interesting because Paul in verse 27, 28, he, if I paraphrase, he says, don't be too eager, eager to change your status. So this is kind of shocking in his, in his day what he's going to talk about because he's going to say this. He says, you know, if you're married, you need to stay married. But then he says this shocking statement. If you're single, you can stay single. You've got to understand that to us, this might, this might just kind of, you know, well, that's interesting. But see, this is a shocking thing because in traditional culture, and some of you come from a traditional type culture, in a traditional culture, you have no standing except your family. There are no individual standings. There is no individual achievement. It's family standing. It's family achievement. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, uh, people who are, uh, you know, lived their whole lives and come from America for a long time tend to talk about, uh, here's my house, here's my car, here's my bank account. But people from other traditional cultures, when they talk about house, they talk about their family's houses. They talk about their family's businesses. They talk about their family's achievements because you're nothing without your family. In most of these more traditional cultures, and especially in Paul's day, as a matter of fact, this is the very first time that anyone has ever said that singleness is okay. This is the first time. No one's ever said this before. As a matter of fact, there's a, uh, uh, an anthropologist by the name of Stanley Hauervoss, who's a brilliant uh, professor at Duke, and he talks about uh, that for the first time, singleness becomes a paradigm for the followers of Christ. Uh, one of the researchers uh, by the name of Stark, he says that one of the most unusual contrasts in ancient culture and setting was that Christians actually took care of their widows. And in pagan culture, and particularly in Roman culture, uh, Julius, uh, no, Augustus Caesar actually made a decree that a widow could not be a widow for more than two years or she would be fined or put in prison because they were not to become a burden on society. It was so anti-singleness. It was so anti the idea of fulfillment apart from family in this traditional culture. And Paul comes along and says, this is, this is powerful, he says, we as Christians have the highest view of sex ever, and yet, he said, you will be perfectly okay to live without it. See, over here, Where it's a cheeseburger, how can I live without my cheeseburger? I mean, over here, family's not the big deal. But being satisfied, personally, is the big deal. Then you go over here, and it's defiling, and it's degrading. But it's interesting, and and this may get me in trouble with some of you, but it's almost like the family becomes an idol. Like everything is about the family. And so what we see in so many circumstances is people who preach family values are hypocrites. It's not really true. Because what they've done is they've elevated family to a status that the Bible never elevates the family to. And elevates, elevates the idea of you know, parenting and other things. It's not that it's not important. Don't misunderstand me. But if family is your God, then it's an idol. If family is your source, then family is idolatry. There are some people that their marriage is an idolatry. There are some people that parenting, they are they are their little gods or their little children. And it's not just... It's in many cultures. It's interesting. I, I love Spanish culture. And I love living in Spanish cultures and spending my time there. But, the, but in Spanish culture, many of you who are from that, don't you, don't you call your, your children little kings and little queens? Kind of setting them up for something. <laughs> to be little brats, maybe. <laughs> you know? Other cultures... Think about some of the, those who come from Asian cultures where there's so much guilt and shame, where the family honor is an idolatrous thing, there's, and you, you break the rules of the family. It doesn't matter what God's rules are. Don't break the family rules. And so then you can be destroyed by this. See, Paul, Paul is saying something so radical, and those of you who are single, you need to hear me today. He's saying, yes, in in biblical truth, and the design of the Creator, you have the highest view of sex, but you'll be just as good and you'll be just as well off, Paul is saying, and your life will be fine and wonderful without it. Because he assumes that if you're single and you're Christian, you are abstaining from sexual relations because you don't have a covenant commitment. This is revolutionary. Some of you, I've already lost you at this point. (laughs) Now, let me, let me just contrast this a little bit. There's a, I was telling you a couple weeks ago about this great book called The Denial of Death. And in this book, The Denial of Death, there's this kind of modern view of stated of, about romance. And what this guy Becker says is because we have such a secular society and, and because we have no ultimate future, we have this sense of insignificance. And so he says, without God, this guy's a, he's, he's not a believer, this guy. He's just a, a writing as an observer, as a commentator on our society. He says, without God, we look to romance to satisfy our need for significance. This is, this is where I, I, I'm taking some time on these things because I really believe many of us have never heard or thought this. But you are being bombarded from the very day, first days of your life that you will only be significant if you find true love. And true love is usually defined by Disney. <laughs> Prince Charming, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. I mean, it's, that's the grid. And you may say, oh, I'm much more sophisticated. No, you're not. It gets stuck. What you learn as a child is what sticks with you. I mean, my daughter watched Cinderella every day for a year. It was like her devotional. You know, it's just, she loved it. She loved it. She thought she was Cinderella. I was her evil stepfather, you know. All kinds of stuff. Well, so what he's saying here, and this is where where the world is creeping into our lives, our marriages, our singleness, all of these things. It's giving us a view of romance that is not the Bible. It's not the designer. Everything depends on finding your true love. And so this is what the idea of finding your true love is. It's self-glorification. It's finding that person, that love partner, who will help us rid us of our faults, not by getting rid of our faults, but by over, like, overlooking them and glossing over them and saying, oh, even when you fart, it smells good. <laughs> I've never found a woman yet who says that. To know that our existence, you see, is not in vain because if I have the perfect love, if I have the perfect spouse, if I have the perfect romance, then I have significance. I mean, if you don't see the bogusness of that but the pervasiveness of it, it's everywhere. Your hearts have been captivated by a lie and Paul in his word and in the word of God, God is trying to destroy our fake sentimentality. And get us to the place that we can actually be people who are satisfied and fulfilled. You know, this, Paul says it's not the romantic view, it's not the modern view. And so the root of the, the revolution that I would call our, uh, our Christian certainty is what we call hope here. It reshapes everything. We have a higher view of sex than any other group, but we also have a freedom from the need of it. Doesn't become that which is obsessive and idolatrous to us, and there's three. I, again, I, I'm heavily influenced, and but these help me so much, and I'd like to frame them for you because there's three things that you have that will help you begin to get over your defiling sense, or get over your appetite sense, and get over your romantic, and and get over whatever you know situation you find yourself in to begin to focus. And to begin to have life now. Okay, the first is that, that Paul describes for us that we are a part of an ultimate family. We ha- we're already a part of a future ultimate family. That family in this life, marriage in this life, is only a foretaste of what will be ours forever. Together. Even the church is a foretaste. And and even as you know, as sometimes bad church experiences can be, it is a foretaste. It's a a pointing to what we will be forever. And and there is this there's this aspect that's interesting in verse thirty one. He talks about the form of this world is passing away. Everything that we count on here in this life is transient, it's temporary. You know, we're living in an overlap of two ages, of the age that was inaugurated by Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's present, but still the kingdom of sin and darkness is still here, And, and they both seem to meet in your body, and you have this tension that goes on, and... But here's what Jesus said. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. He's talking about the church. He's talking about our connection to each other. You see, because, but part of the problem is because we're so bad in marriage and we're so bad in relationship, the church is pretty bad at relationship. Because we haven't recognized that what I have in you and what you have in me is precious. It's part, it's, it's, a, it's a glimpse of how we will have oneness together, a glimpse of how you will know me and love me and I will know you and love you and that the life we have together is not going to be a constant state of conflict and misunderstanding, but that even as we, we go through this time together of, of dealing with this earth suit and all of the brokenness that's within my soul and you choose to love me not just for who I am, but for who I will be. See, in a sense, in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that you know real biblical marriage is kind of giving up and on trying to make someone in what you want them to be, but beginning to believe in who they will be. I love this quote. This is Hauerbass again. Those of you who are single, this is very important. Jesus himself said, if you give up, even if you give up having heirs, if you give up having children, which was catastrophic in the ancient world. So even if you give that up, you give up the right to have heirs. He says, Hauerbass says this way, the early church's uh, uh, legitimation of singleness as a form of life symbolized the necessity of the church to grow through witness and conversion. Singleness was legitimate, not because sex was thought to be a particularly questionable activity, but the mission of the church was such that between the times, the church required those who were capable of complete service to the kingdom. They now understand that they have, made, they have been made part of a community that is more determinative than the biological family. This is a radical view about singleness. Well, not only do we have a future family, but we have this ultimate journey, this future journey that we're on. One of the statements that people use wrongly is they talk about how your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit so you shouldn't smoke and shouldn't have sugar and you shouldn't have caffeine and all of this, which is just such a childish understanding of this verse because this verse is really talking about the fact that you have been united to God. In verse... uh, Uh, This verse that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what Paul says, and, and this now applies so much to those that are in marriage, he says marriage is wonderful, but it's a long journey. He says, you know, from conversion to glory, from the time you're converted to Christ to actually when you're glorified in His presence, is a long journey we, are, we, we come to Christ, and even as we're walking with Christ, we're so far from where we long to be. So if you begin to take that journey from where you are to glory with somebody else, well, you're probably going to encounter one conflict after another. Paul calls this kind of his joyous realism. You have to joyously realize <laughs> that you, you didn't marry the person you thought you married. As a matter of fact, that that idea over here that marriage is about self-fulfillment and self-expression, well, uh, Howard Voss says this way, we always marry the wrong person. We never marry the person we thought we married. We all change. So the purpose of marriage is learning to know and love the stranger you married. It's so true. A uh, great, one of the writers, the Christian writers, he's an older man in his 60s. He said, my wife has lived with five different men, and all of them were me. <laughs> it's true, right? I mean, there's something that, that you think, I want to grow old with you. In other words, I want you to stay 18 until Jesus comes back again or something. I don't, I don't really want to grow old with you. I don't want it to change. I don't want to morph or any of these things. And so part of this whole thing that Paul is calling us to is he's saying you're not your own. You're bought with a price. So this fu- future ultimate journey, this is what Lewis says, if you'll let him, if you'll let God, because we can prevent him, he says he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. Pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. See, I don't know about you, but this is what I, I, I began to recognize this and I began to say, that's the journey I signed up for. I will change with my wife She will change with me. Sometimes she's a stranger to me and I will get to know that stranger, but I've committed myself to her. My ultimate fulfillment and destiny is at this stage of life, at this season of life, as long as we're both alive, we are together. Whatever changes come, I have to adapt because that's how I am transformed. I am not transformed by trying to find a romantic notion of love. I am transformed by giving myself wholly to the one I've committed to. Otherwise, I will never know that completion or that fulfillment. And why can I do that? Well, this is the last of the three. First is the ultimate family. You're my ultimate family. You're my ultimate family. As we go through life together, we will be together forever in eternity. You know, I'm on an ultimate journey. This, you know, My journey isn't self-expression and self-fulfillment and self-glorification. My journey is, is all the way to glorification in the sight of God, the very presence of God. And then the last of my reasons is we have this future ultimate ver, uh, lover. Verse 16, where it talks about uniting yourself with the prostitute. Before and after that, it says you become one with Christ. It says that you're in union with His Spirit. You're one with Him in the Spirit. There's a oneness, there's a union, there's a, there's a, a connection that, that he's, he's equating or making uh, very much an analogy to the sexual experience. And so he speaks, uh, he speaks this way to the woman at the well. This is, uh, he says to her, he talks about her sex life. He says, you had five husbands and the one you're with now you're not even married to. And he says, and he looks at her and basically what he says is you were looking for the water of life and love and romance And then he says this, and this is outrageous, but basically says, will you make me your one true love? And that's what Jesus is asking of all of us. Without Jesus as your one true love, you will never find love. And even if you could find it, you would not be able to handle it. You'd be too desperate for romance, or you would stay with the wrong people, or you would smother them, or you'd be so scared you'd be cynical and you'd never be able to give yourself to them. Human sexuality is nothing more than a foretaste of what it will be like to fall into your Savior's arms in the last day. And if human sexuality is nothing but a dim view and it's as explosive as it is, can you imagine what it will be like to fall into your Savior's arms? So I go back and finish with this one last thing. You know, Paul's making clear that sex in, only in marriage is not some form of prudery. It's not some narrow-mindedness. He's basically saying, in the same way you cannot have inti- intimacy with God, with God without losing your independence, you can't have intimacy with others without losing your inti- independence. And why this is okay, at least in a deep, deep foundational way, is because God himself was willing to lose his independence so that he could be intimate with you. God himself, because on the cross, Jesus became weak. He became vulnerable. He was not in control of his own life. He was not in control of his own destiny. And he didn't do that randomly. He did that so he could be near you for all eternity. I'm just asking that you would sign up for this together. Does this make sense to you? In a sense, what we're saying very simply is if Jesus is your true love, then everything else will flow out of that and it will be beautiful for you. Can you stand together? I'll ask Frank to close us in prayer.